morning, everyone. I'm Joe Collins. You know, growing up, my dad had two favorite jokes that he loved to tell kids. And uh, one of them went something like this. Did you know that elephants paint their toenails red? And usually the kid would say no. Or, or he would say, do you know why elephants paint their toenails red? And the kid would say no. And he would say because they like to hide in cherry trees. And the kid would say, okay. And then he would say, have you ever seen an elephant in a cherry tree? And the kid would say, no. And he would say, they hide well. <laughs> now, I never said my dad was a comedian. I just said he had two jokes that he liked to tell. I don't know how funny they are, but those, those were the jokes. But they do tie us into our series title, The Elephant in the Room. And by the way, if you're in our teen our high school ministry, now's a good time to be dismissed. Uh, you do have a class today. Everyone else, the junior high and on up, is going to be in here. If you're in the back and you want to move up at this time, it's totally fine to do that. If not, you, you can stay where you are. But, uh, you know, the concept of the series title, The Elephant in the Room, is, is the idea that the elephant is an obvious truth that goes unaddressed. Yeah. Now, last week, we talked about the elephant that we find in the kitchen, and the kitchen is where we eat, and we connected that with popular culture and how popular culture is constantly trying to force feed us its morals, its values, its principles, correct? Right. And, and we, we studied out Daniel chapter 1. We learned that Daniel was a teenager. He had been taken into captivity into a foreign land, a land called Babylon, and there they tried to indoctrinate him into everything Babylon. They tried to force feed him everything Babylon. Daniel had to be able to decipher what in, that, what in that popular culture that he was living in, that foreign culture, what was okay, what was not an issue, but what was something he had to not uh, ingest, that he had to avoid taking in. And, and Daniel was able to do that. He was able to defend himself from the negative parts of the popular culture because Daniel had a good foundation. Today, we're going to step out of the kitchen, and we're going to go to our next room. Anybody want to guess what room we're going to today? We're going to the bedroom. I'm having fun with the hotel staff here because I keep asking them to give me props for my rooms, and I don't know what we're going to do when we run out of props for the room. But right now, last week, I got a little kitchenette table, and this week, I got us to, get them, got us to give us a bed. So... There we go. That's our big prop for the day today. Hopefully you're impressed with that. But we are going to talk about the bedroom. Did you know that in the 19th century marked a significant change from the way things had been for centuries to the way things are now? Thanks to the Industrial Revolution, incomes rose, the middle class was born, and people began to move away from communal living Houses began to get built for single-family homes. Single-family dwellings began to get built. And guess what they began to include in this new type of house? Bedrooms. Now, this allowed a level of privacy unheard of for centuries before. Today, we value our privacy. And no room reflects that that more than the bedroom. It's the place where we have our private time. It's where we can be ourselves 
we can allow ourselves to think and contemplate and we can block out all the, the noise or the distractions from the world around us. Let's go to God and pray before we read from his word. Father, thank you for this time to be together. Thank you for this great group of people and we pray for your spirit to be with us as we look at your word. Inspire us, give us insight, help us to know what it is that you want us to know from your word. And help it to bring about change for the better in our lives this week and, and, and moving on from today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to read Daniel chapter 2. We're going to stay in the book of Daniel. Verses 1 through 3. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. The time is around 603, maybe 602 BC. This is a real historical event. Nebuchadnezzar was a real historical figure. This is not a myth or or a fabrication. These events really did happen. And he had just become king of Babylon. He had, he had uh, you know, replaced his father on the throne there. And Babylon had become the most powerful empire in the world. Now, it wasn't the only empire in the world. There were empire, the, the, the Mayan Empire was thriving in South America. The Greeks were just becoming uh, you know, to really rise up and become a, a, an influential group of people. So around the world, there were other things going on. This wasn't the only place in the world that things were happening. But this is... But, but Babylon was in the, was in the Middle East, and, and the Middle East was the, was the home of many people, but most especially it was the home of the Israelites. And when we read the Bible, especially the older books found in the Old Testament, what we are reading is the history of the Israelites, God's people. And so when we talk about empires and kingdoms, it's always in the, they're always in the context of those empires or kingdoms that had anything to do with Israel, had any effect or, on, on their livelihood or outcome or their course of events of their history. Uh, um, it was, those, those were what was included in the Bible. It wasn't, uh, you know, the Bible wasn't written to talk about all world empires. It was just specific to the nations that had any influence or anything to do with Israel throughout their history. Now, it probably is true that Babylon was the most powerful kingdom on earth at the time because many of those other kingdoms were really not as advanced as they were. And they had a new leader, King Nebuchadnezzar. He had just recently defeated Israel in battle and taken many of their uh, uh, treasures out of their temple, including many of their uh, best of their, of their uh, people, like the, the children of the nobles, etc. He had taken them into captivity, as was custom in that day. And Daniel was one of those people that was taken. And in chapter 1, we learned all about that. And, and Daniel had to survive now in Babylon, a completely foreign nation, a completely foreign culture. But he had to survive in that culture. And he had a desire, as chapter 1 tells us, to remain true to his faith. And so he had a, a, a really difficult uh, task before him, to stay faithful to his God and to his beliefs, even though he was now completely immersed in the Babylonian culture, in the Babylonian way, and the Babylonian gods, and things like that. Now, this King Nebuchadnezzar, as he sat on the throne, like any, any new ruler, or anybody with level of responsibility, had a lot, of, lot on his mind. And, and one night he went to bed, and he was troubled. He, he, there was just a lot going on. And as often is the case when we got a lot on our plate, we, we have a lot of dreams. And Nebuchadnezzar had a really interesting and significant dream that night. It was so significant that it troubled him when he woke up and he called together his advisors. 
And he wanted to know what the meaning of the dream was. Now, research tells us that everybody dreams. As a matter of fact, everybody dreams a lot. Most dreams are between 5 to 20 minutes, and they occur frequently throughout the night. But the fact of the matter is, the vast majority of our dreams are completely unremarkable, and most of them are not even remembered. But this was no ordinary dream. There was something significant about the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, and he knew it was not an ordinary dream. In the Bible... Dreams, which come to us when we're sleeping. And we can talk about visions, which come to us when we're awake. We, we could consider those like daydreams. Uh, uh, often are messages from God when we read about them in the Bible. But this raises a number of questions for me. And maybe it raises a number of questions for you. The first question I have is, well, does that mean all of our dreams or visions or daydreams, are they all messages from God? Another question that came to my mind when I was studying this was, does God normally communicate to us through dreams and visions? Does God give dreams and visions to people today? If so, how do we know? I want to take a minute before we get into the rest of the story, and I just want to, I want to put some clarity on the concept of dreams and visions, because if you are interested in reading the Bible, or if you do read the Bible on a regular basis, or if you're new to the Bible, I want you to understand a little bit of the uh, 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 I, want, I want to give you some help on how to better understand when, when you come across dreams and visions. It's helpful because we can get caught up in these things and they can lead us down roads that aren't actually good for us or aren't actually beneficial. So let's, let's answer some of these questions. The first question is, are all dreams and visions messages from God? And the answer to that would be no. We already established that. We dream and we dream a lot as people and the vast majority of our dreams aren't even remembered. So I hope they're not messages from God, because if they are, we're missing a whole lot of his messages. Secondly, does God normally communicate using dreams and visions? And, and the answer to that would be no again. Not even in the Bible is God's, uh, is God's primary method of communication through dreams and visions. As a matter of fact, dreams and visions tend to occur in the absence of other forms of revelation. In other, and when I say revelation, I mean messages from God. And so let me give you an example. If there was a known prophet who was alive and well and existing and, 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 and um, performing his ministry, the tendency of people having dreams and visions or communications from God went down. If there was written revelation from God, in other words, if, if the writings of prophets or of teachers of Israel, and they were written down and they were preserved, if they were in existence, the, the tendency for dreams and visions, that form of communication for God, went down. The reason being is obvious. It's much easier to prove the validity of a prophet because they could also accompany their message with miracles or, or signs and wonders. It's much easier to prove the, 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 the validity of, of a written message because you could research it, you could study it, you could examine it, than it is to try to rely on the interpretation of a dream. It's really not the most reliable way in which God communicates to people. Now, did he communicate to people through dreams and visions? Absolutely. But generally, it was not normative, and the reasons are because it wasn't the most reliable form of communication. It's open to a lot of misunderstanding and misinterpretation. Does God give people dreams and visions today? And the answer to that question is possibly. Can't rule anything out with God. God can do what he wants. 
There are parts of the world where there are no prophets. God's written revelation is not uh, uh, prevalent. And maybe God does speak in those situations as much as he can. Maybe he does communicate his message as much as possible in those situations, in, in a scenario like that. But there's a few tests that we can, we can, we can uh, use to identify whether a dream or a vision is really from God. The first one is, we've already talked about it, it's not normative. What I, what I want you to understand by that is, is this isn't our go-to way of understanding God's communication to us. We shouldn't be waiting or looking or constantly wanting to know about dreams and visions. That's not normative. It's not his best and, and most effective way to communicate. And so we shouldn't be out there waiting for a dream or a vision or hoping we get one. That's not the right perspective or stance to have. Secondly, not everyone got dreams and visions. It was really a unique scenario. Unique individuals with unique purposes of God were given dreams and visions. Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world at the time, that held in his hand the, out, the fate of the Israelite nation, that's a unique person. I know that you played sports, and I know that you got, and I did too, a lot of participation medals. But that doesn't make you special. Only one team wins the championship, right? Only one kid gets the MVP trophy. We all got medals, but really there's only one player that stood out. And that's the same with dreams and visions and with God's communications. He, he gave them to unique people in unique circumstances. Next, God's revelation never contradicts other revelation. So if you've had a dream or a vision, if someone gave, if you woke up and think, is this from God, and, and the dream told you to steal from the rich and give to the poor, you can be sure that that is not from God. Because God has already revealed that stealing is wrong. He could never contradict something he's already communicated. And then lastly, and, and maybe, uh, you know, another great way to test a dream or a vision is that they're never wrong. When a dream or vision comes from God, it's never wrong. And so if there's a prophecy, if there's something that has to do with foretelling the future, or if there's some uh, uh, message and it, and it has to do with a, a, a certain time and a place, you can always verify if it's from God if it comes to be true. Now, there, we have lots of people that claim to be able to foretell the future, right? Uh, I remember when I was a kid, I think her name was Jean Dixon. Remember her? She's still around. She's got to be a million years old. But anyway, she, she uh, you know, every year would come out with her predictions, and it would be in the newspaper, and not, none of them were ever right. And maybe one might come close, and then they would make a big deal out of it. She predicted this, you know, and... Yeah, but all the others were wrong, and that's clearly not a, a message from God. God doesn't do that. So my point in all this is to say this, because we kind of sidebarred here from the story, but I thought it was important to educate and give you some information on these things if you hadn't considered them before. But my point is this, and, and I really want you to take this away from this, from this conversation. God's word is the most reliable form of revelation. And it's in God's word where we should turn to find messages from God to us. We should not be looking other places or hoping that other things happen or constantly trying to investigate other ways because it's very clear that the, God's written word is the best form of revelation we have in existence. 
And when, and when God gives his revelation, he wants you to get it. He doesn't hide it. He doesn't put it in these mysterious things far, you know, far removed from the main, the main and the plain. He puts it right there, front and center, for everyone to hear and see. And so God's word is actually a prophetic vision from God given to you and to me that we can rely on. And it is the primary place to find his truth and messages from him to you. All right, let's move on in the story. Verse 4. Then the astrologers answered the king, May the king live forever. Tell your servants a dream and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your house is turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once more, they replied, let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will interpret it. Then the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time, because you realize that this is what I have decide, firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is only one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation would change. So then, tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, There is no one on earth who can do what the king has asked. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they, have, they do not live among humans. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. King Nebuchadnezzar wasn't messing around, was he? He had a dream, and it was unique. And it was a unique circumstance. And all those criteria we talked about before about how to, how to decipher whether something is a message from God, from God actually fit with King Nebuchadnezzar. And he knew it. He knew that this was an important revelation, and he needed to get to the bottom of that. I appreciate that about King Nebuchadnezzar. He was a non-believer. He was a pagan leader, had nothing to do with the God of, of, of Daniel or, or, or the God of the Bible. He, he probably believed in multiple gods. But he was still a seeker of the truth. He wanted answers. And, and that's something that I think we all can learn from. There are people in the world around us, whether they look like us, behave like us, or believe like us, they still want to know the truth. There are people out there seeking, and we got to be okay that we're going to engage people who are very different from us because they want to know the truth, and we can bring truth to them. Now, in this situation... The king pulls together the astrologers and all his, all his advisors in, in this area, and he wants them to settle the, the issue. He wants them to you know, figure out what the meaning of the dream was. But he has, a, he has a little caveat here. Not only do they need to tell him the meaning of the dream, but he wants them to tell him the dream. Now, that's an interesting little twist on things, and, and I think you can appreciate why. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't want to be told something that's not true. He wants to know he wants some way to verify that what their interpretation is, is, is actually true. And no better way to do that than for someone to do something miraculous in front of you. Like tell you the dream you had in detail before they tell you the meaning of the dream. Now, of course, they protested. But Nebuchadnezzar stood fast. Finally, they admitted something. They admitted 
that Nebuchadnezzar's, Nebuchadnezzar's demand was, was beyond what they or even their gods could do. They couldn't know what he had dreamed, and the gods who don't interact with people, even if they knew, couldn't tell them. So both they and their gods were limited in what they could do. And then they did something really stupid. They insulted him by implying that, you know, the gods have no connection to him. You know, you're the king. They're not talking to you. What makes you think they're going to talk to us? And that made him mad. And then he ordered that they be put to death. You know, when I, when I read this, I was, I was just thinking about, okay, we're in the bedroom, right? And, and dreams happen in the bedroom. It's in, it's in the privacy of, of those quiet times. And that's exactly what happened here. Nebuchadnezzar had this, this private moment, and he got a message that he knew was a message. And he wanted answers. He wanted to know what that message meant, and he wanted it to be accurate. He didn't want to play around with this message. And so he turned to the people that should have been best equipped to give him those answers. But they were unable to. And it made me think about uh, the reality that everyone's faith will be tested. Even if you have no faith, if you consider yourself an atheist, your belief will be tested. The question is, are you up for the challenge? The astrologers and the wise men here, they, they were not ready for this kind of a test. All they could do is protest. No one's ever done that before. No one's ever asked me that question. They were so unprepared, they couldn't, they weren't ready for this kind of a test. I want you to know that I firmly believe that my faith in Jesus Christ, or the Christian faith, or the belief in the God of Daniel, who I believe is the same as the God, the God, same God that I worship, will stand tests. But I believe that because I have done my own searching, my own seeking. I've, I've embraced my faith uh, uh, genuinely for myself. And so when people ask me questions, I may not be able to answer every question because questions are unlimited, but I'm very comfortable being able to defend and stand on principles that I believe I understand in my faith. And so I'm not intimidated by challenges to my faith. In fact, I think there's something we should embrace. In fact, we, every one of us, ought to be good at being able to defend our faith. We're all going to do it differently, but we all have the responsibility of being able to defend our faith. We got to rely more on more than just subjective opinion. And that's really what the astrologers were trying to do. Tell us the dream and we'll give you an interpretation completely subjective. No way to verify if it's valid or not. They relied completely on their feeling or their personal experience or whatever the case may be, but it was all subjective and they lacked any kind of substance to their belief in their gods. May that never be said about me or about you. And if you're a, a, a member of our church, the onus is on you. You need to hear this. The onus is on you to be able to, to defend your faith in the face of criticism. And it can't be, well, because that's how I feel. There's got to be some kind of substance to it. Now, the only way you're going to get there, the only way that's ever going to happen, is if you have your own personal commitment to knowing your faith. 
The term we use is disciple. It means student. What do students do? They learn, they research, they examine. They, they find answers. Every one of us, if we call ourselves people of faith, have got to be students of our faith. Now, we've already established that the best revelation for our faith, the foundation of our faith, is found in God's written revelation, the Bible. That means we ought to be good at reading and studying and knowing and explaining and defending what the Bible teaches. Will your faith stand up when it's tested? I'm amazed to think of Daniel. He's a teenager. We talked about that last week. He was probably you know, somewhere between, whatever, 13 and 20 when he was taken captive. He's a teenager. And in chapter 1, we see how much, how much the foundation he had, he had gotten from his parents growing up benefited him in chapter 1, enabled him to, to be able to decipher the good and the bad out of the popular culture. Now, if a teenager taken into captivity, living in Babylon, can do that, then how much more do we need to be that? How much more do we need to own our own faith and be able to defend it and stand up on it and be assured of it and be able to have reasons for it? So our faith is not just subjective, it's also objective. Let's read on, verse 14. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone to put to, to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went to the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness, and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power and made me know to me what we asked of you you have made known to us the dream of the king. Now, Daniel's not even there when the advisors are called into Nebuchadnezzar and have their, their disagreement and then are sentenced to death. And so one day, uh, you know, a messenger from the king shows up and is going to arrest him to kill him. And uh, you've got to appreciate Daniel's tact here. Um, so you're here to kill me. Uh, any reason why, Ariok? You want to... You want to maybe fill me in on what the issue is going on? You know what? You know, you gotta appreciate Daniel as a teenager, the composure and the and the, the the calm that he displayed in this interaction. It's it's quite humorous in some ways. But he's marked for execution for something he had nothing to do with, just because he was grouped in with the, all the advisors of the king. Remember, he was taken last week we talked about this, he was taken from from home, his homeland in Judah. He was taken into captivity in Babylon, and he was pressed into service as an administrator under the king. He was very good at what he did. But once uh, the other uh, staffers that were over him got condemned by a, by, a, by a relationship, they were all condemned, apparently. And so they came to take Daniel away, using wisdom and tact that he had, that he had gotten from growing up uh, and having a good foundation of godly principles from his parents. 
he, he was able to respond with wisdom and tact, and he, and he basically works out an arrangement to get a little more time, which is interesting because the astrologers and, and the sorcerers were trying to do the same thing. Even Nebuchadnezzar said that you're trying to gain more time, and, and they couldn't get more time, maybe, maybe because they offended the king, uh, whereas Daniel wasn't offensive. And that's a, a whole other point, but maybe we should, be, we should pay attention to how we interact in the world around us, and we should not be offensive uh, whenever possible. So Daniel gets more time. And it's interesting to me because in, in verse, uh, if you're reading on your phone or in your Bible, he says in verse 16, so that he might interpret the dream for him. He tells the advisor, give me more time because I'm going to interpret the dream for the king. And I want that to, to resonate with you for a minute. Daniel acted on faith without knowing whether God would give him the message. Now, some people will call that blind faith. And, and I personally don't like the term blind faith because I believe it's derogatory. And I, by the way, don't believe that blind faith is a good faith. Blind faith implies that there's no thought in why you believe what you believe. There's no justification for it. There's no substance to it. You just believe it because you believe it. And lots of people have done horrible things throughout the history of man basing it on blind faith. I want to twist this around a little bit, and I want to put it to you this way. Daniel didn't have blind faith. He had faith when he was blind. And what I mean by that is Daniel couldn't see what the outcome was going to be. He had no idea where this road was going to lead, but he acted on faith anyways. And there is a difference There are times in all of our lives where we do not know the outcome. We do not know where God is taking us or where this road we're on is going to end. Yet we are still able to be faithful as we walk on the road. Meaning Daniel stayed true to his core beliefs, his core values, his core convictions. He didn't didn't give in. Uh, to uh, any, anything that was outside of his core values. And so he acted in faith, even though he was blind. And then something really neat happened. There was a very intense prayer meeting at his house that night. He called his three friends. We talked about them in chapter one, uh, uh, who were taken into captivity with him. He said, guys, we need to get together and we need to have a prayer meeting right now. And notice he didn't invite the other astrologers because they were of no use at this point. So he gets his friends together, and they have an incredible time of prayer that night. And and, uh, there's another thing here that that jumps out at me. In addition to the idea of having faith when blind, there's also another interesting concept that I want you to to, to really let sink in here, and that is that praying friends are valuable friends. Ethel and Anthony shared in the welcome about the the church being a family, and, and I feel that. And I know many of you out there feel that too. And if you don't have that, we want that for you. If you're not feeling that, we want you to have that. Because there is something incredibly valuable about being part of a community or, 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 or a group of people that share the same values. Prayer was one of their values. It was their way of acting in faith, of turning to the God that they believed in and calling upon him for answers. Remember, we talked about this last week. At this point in time in history, most people would have thought, and many, and probably many of the Jews who were taken into captivity in Babylon, 
would have thought or at least been tempted to think that God didn't exist. Their God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Hebrew God, that he didn't exist or that he was a lesser God compared to the gods of Babylon. Because how else could you explain Babylon coming in and winning and taking over and dominating you and looting your temple and, and taking away your, 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 your sons and daughters into captivity? Clearly, the world and, and people at large would have easily said, oh, well, you guys got the wrong God. That's why you lost. And so this is a real difficult time, yet we have Daniel and his four friends, all teenagers, who banded together and refused to give up on their God. So they had faith when they were blind, and then they had the friendship to help maintain that faith during those dark times. Last night we had a prayer meeting for Glenn and Vicki. Many of you know Glenn and Vicki, dear friends of all of us, members of our church. Their daughter Taylor's been very, very sick. Uh, and last night was, was, was uh, as Glenn put it, I think you, you, you may have seen his email without going into detail. It was the darkest time of his life. Uh, things looked really, really bad for his daughter, Taylor. And uh, he sent a text saying, send me scriptures now. That's all it said to me. Because he was looking for any kind of reason to find encouragement or faith or to be faithful in a very dark time. And so... Many of us in the church, we put out a call to have a prayer meeting. We got together in a home, and we, we did exactly what Daniel and his advisors did. We got on our knees, and we prayed, and we prayed for an hour, <clears throat> 9 to 10 of last night, emergency prayer meeting, last minute, for his daughter. We texted them messages and scriptures that we talked about that came to our minds, and, and we offered them as much encouragement uh, as, as we could. And, and you know, this is going to be a long road for Taylor. There's going to be many more prayers needed, and, we, and, and we're asking for continued prayer for her. It's, it's, it's an ongoing situation. She's not out of the woods by any means. But I asked Glenn in the morning when I finally was able to talk to him and found out uh, what the circumstances were and why it was so troubling, and it was very troubling. But he told me that around 10 o'clock, the doctor came out of that. They were doing an exploratory surgery. They finally finished. They came out, and, he, and his words were it was the first good news he had gotten since this whole thing started. And 10 o'clock was about the time we ended our prayer meeting. Wow. Now, I don't, I don't know where this is going to end. I don't know where this is going to go. But I believe God is hearing our prayers. Yes, it's completely subjective. Yes, I can't do any kind of objective verification. But I didn't say subjective is all bad. I just said it's not the only basis for your faith, right? We've got to have both. But boy, was that encouraging to hear. And uh, they send their thanks and gratitude to everyone who's been praying for them. So this is what happens. Daniel and his, his friends, they get together. They have this intense prayer meeting. And guess what? In the night, in a vision, so either Daniel was, uh, you know, maybe they're lumping these two words together, I don't know. But either he was awake and God gave him an answer, or, or maybe he dozed off and they're just using the word vision and dream interchangeably. I don't know. But Daniel is given the answer to Nebuchadnezzar's question. He's not only given the meaning of the dream, but he's given the dream. So Daniel saw the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, and then he was given the, the meaning for the dream. And I love what he says. And I want to read it again, and I put it in your sermon notes, because I want every one of us to take a minute and listen to Daniel's prayer here. In verse 19, it says, During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise 
be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness, and light dwells with him. I thank God and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. This was a dark moment. This was a dark time for Daniel and his friends. They, they were on the, on the verge of being executed. But, but more than that, the whole nation of Israel had been deposed. It had been defeated. They had been scattered and dispersed all, of, all around Babylon. In, in just a few years, Babylon, they don't know this yet, but, he, but King Nebuchadnezzar was going to return to Jerusalem in just about six or seven years and completely level the city. And, 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 and in this dark time, in this low moment, Daniel gets a revelation from God that confirms the validity of his faith. God has not quit. God has not given up. God is not a lesser God. He's not, he's not been disposed or defeated by Babylon. He's still there. And I want you to think for a minute, if you were in Babylon and you were taken into captivity, and, and as, as time went on, this story began to get whispered about and told and passed on from person to person. And think about the encouragement to your faith it must have been as you began to hear, wait, wait a second, Daniel's advising Nebuchadnezzar? Wait, D- Daniel was given a, a, a revelation from God? He's, he's there, one of our own is right there with the most powerful man in the world. He's right there. I mean, we, we aren't completely done. God is not done with us. We're not devastated. It's not over. We haven't lost. We, we, aren't, we didn't put our, our eggs in the wrong basket here. We've been, you know, we're still in the game. And as that message trickled, trickled back to the, to the people in, in Jerusalem that were still there, that hadn't been completely destroyed just yet, the message was really, really clear to everyone in the Jewish community. God has not been defeated. One of the most interesting things in my study of this passage of the Bible is when I discovered that beginning in Daniel chapter 2, verse 4, I think it is, and going all the way through Daniel chapter 7, the end of Daniel chapter 7, the text is written in Aramaic. Daniel 1 is written in Hebrew, and the, and the end of Daniel uh, 8 through 12, I think it is, is written in Hebrew, but this middle section is written in Aramaic. Aramaic was the, the language of Babylon. Do you get the point? God was, was, was letting not only the Israelites, but the whole known world know he was not done. You see, even the Babylonians who spoke Aramaic, as they began to become aware of what was going on there, the message would have been the same to them. There's something more going on here with this God of Israel, this God of Daniel, than we may have thought initially. Because of all of our advisors, of all of our people, he's the God that was able to give the answer that Nebuchadnezzar was looking for. He's the God who's able to, to tell you the dream that was given because he gave it and then give the meaning to the dream. In other words, this whole account is done in the open for the entire empire to know about. When I read that and I, and I kept reading that dream and trying to understand the dream, I had what I call a moment of faith. It just, I don't know how to describe it, but it really struck me 
that the God Daniel worships, the same God that I worship, is real. And that he's greater than all the other gods. If there are even other gods. Blind faith versus faith when blind. Praying friends are valuable friends. God has not been defeated. These are some takeaways that I hope you can make mental note of. And, and I, what I'm going to ask you to do by way of a challenge this week is to read this dream every day this week. Take some time. If you want to read the whole chapter, go ahead. But on your own, in the quiet of your own room, in the privacy of your bedroom, read Daniel chapter 2, verses 19 through 23. And just, just savor the moment. <laughs> Appreciate all that's happening here in this interaction. And know that what Daniel said has been declared to the entire, was declared to the entire empire of Babylon and has been declared ever since to every other succeeding empire all the way up to our day. That God in heaven is control of human, is in control of human events and history and is the authority above all. And maybe you too will have a moment faith. Verse 24 to 30, then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to exclude, to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, also called Belshazzar, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain, it to the, can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the vision that passed through your mind as you were lying in bed are these. As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come. And the reveal of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. You can appreciate uh, Daniel's status among the other uh, enchanters and sorcerers and wise men, right? I mean, he just saved their life also. He, he could have said, uh, well, let's kill those guys first, and then I'll tell you uh, the answer to the dream. But he didn't. He made friends when he needed to make friends. You know, in opposition, in, in juxtaposition to Arioch, Arioch went around and took credit. I found the guy, whereas Daniel said, no, this, this wasn't given to me because of me. And Daniel turned all honor and praise to God. But, but Nebuchadnezzar wants to know, remember, the, the whole story centers around the dream. What was this dream about? And before Daniel gives Nebuchadnezzar any answer to his dream, he does something first. And this is where we get to our series, The Elephant in the Room. And, and, and the elephant that we find in the, in the bedroom, the privacy of the bedroom. And here it is. The other advisors could not reveal the dream or its meaning. That's the elephant that was in the room. When Daniel showed up and, and said, hey, I can answer this, everyone knew no one else could. And so Daniel makes a point to address the elephant in the room. By the way, no one else was given revelation here. 
Now, I'm not taking credit for myself. It was given to me by God for your benefit. That was, that, that was exposed in Nebuchadnezzar's dream that I think is being exposed in our day and age. I'm going to put it to you in a word. Coexist. We all know what that looks like on, a, on the back of a car bumper sticker, right? It's, it's really cool, right? It's coexist in all the symbols of all these different religious uh, uh, traditions. And I think even there's a, is there an atheist one in there? I can't remember. There might even be an atheist one in the symbol somewhere in there. But, but this coexist and, 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 and the other thing, tolerance, the coexist tolerance movement that we're, we're, in, we're being uh, inundated with in our society and our culture, it's everywhere. It's on cars. It's, in the, it's woven into the, to the, to the, to the plot lines and the sitcoms. It's, it's tied into the storylines of movies. I mean, it's everywhere in our culture. It's in our education system. It's just being pushed on us time and time and time again. And what is the basic basic tenet. What is the thing that they're trying to say through those, through those, uh, the, those bumper stickers and, and the storylines and all that? What are, what are they trying to tell you and I? They're trying to tell you and I that no faith or expression of faith or lack of faith is any better than any other. That they're all equal. Well, Daniel would tell you, no, they're not. In fact, Daniel, in a very public way, announced it to the entire Babylonian empire and to the world history, for that matter, that they're not. That there is a substantive difference between the God of Daniel and any other religious or lack of religious belief that may exist. And that difference can be, it's demonstrably different. It can be demonstrated. In this case, it was demonstrated through supernatural interaction of God, giving a dream and revealing a dream. But in our day and age, it can be, it can be demonstrated through, through study. We, we, can, we can look at archaeological evidence and, and see the validity of the Bible as an archaeological a, a, a historically accurate document. We can't do that with other documents or other religious beliefs. We can look at the prophetic uh, um, um, examples found in the Bible. We're not going to talk about it today. You're going to have to come back next week to find out the meaning of the dream. I'm going to leave you with, with a thing for next week, a teaser for next week. If you want to know what this dream was about, come back next week. But I'm going to tell you this, it foretells the future from Daniel's time moving forward. And, and given that, we know when Daniel was written, we can actually look at the, the, the prophecy here in Daniel and how it's interpreted, date it to 605 B.C., and verify that, that it came true, that it was accurate, well into the future. So we have archaeological evidence. We have, we have uh, prophetic evidence. We have uh, 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 documentary evidence. In other words, can the Bible be trusted? Yes. There's so much documentary evidence that supports the, the, uh, the, the accuracy of the Bible, that what we read is what was written back then, etc., that we can trust it. We don't have any of those things for any other religious system's belief. They don't have that level of objective verification. I'm not saying that I have faith in the evidence. I'm saying that I have a faith that is supported by the evidence. And no, no other faith or lack of faith can make that same claim. 
And so the elephant in our room, in our day and age, that, that, that exists in our room, uh, you know, in, in, in the world today, is that everything, all faiths are somehow equal when, when the truth is they're not. And you and I have got to be okay with that. We don't have to be uh, 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 repulsive. We don't have to be offensive with that. Daniel wasn't offensive. But we have to be okay with it. We have to be comfortable with it. We have to be solid in it. And then we can act appropriately in the world around us. And always remember that Daniel didn't take any of the credit for himself. He gave all the credit, both the night that he was given the vision and in front of Nebuchadnezzar and to the whole known world at the time, that this was all because of a revelation given to him by his God. And so all credit and honor and praise always goes to God. I don't know how you feel about that, but for me, I get excited. I, like, I, I, it's enthu- I, I'm excited by the idea that, man, we can engage people. We can talk about these things. I like digging into the history. I like knowing the archaeological stuff. I like knowing the, the, uh, the, uh, you know, the scientific stuff, all that stuff. It makes me excited. I don't know about you. Maybe, maybe some does. Maybe some doesn't. Maybe it makes you uncomfortable. Certainly sometimes makes me uncomfortable, too. I mean, believe me, I live in the world, too. I don't walk around in a, in a, you know, a, a purely godly environment all day long. I've been in classrooms where the stuff that's being taught from the stage is, is literally as, almost as offensive as it could be to me. And I've had to stay quiet and try to have tact in that situation and, and, and decipher what am I going to argue and what am I not going to argue? What am I going to defend and what am I not going to defend, right? I've been there. I know you're there too. You go to work, you go to school, whatever it is, you interact with people on a daily basis. It's not an easy job that God has given us. It wasn't an easy job for Daniel to stand before the king of the world and proclaim his faith and do it in a way that would be very clearly in opposition to what his, the, the faith of his empire. I don't know how you're going to be called, if you're going to be called to do that on a very public stage or if you're going to be called to do it in a private stage. I know this, you're going to be called to do it. And so it all comes back to the foundation. It all comes back to knowing what you believe, why you believe it, and having evidence for that belief. And that all comes back to your interest, your personal desire to know God's word. And so I'm going to say it again, please. This week, read the prayer of Daniel again and again and again. Let it be a moment of faith for you. And let it turn into a a habit and a desire on your part to know more and to know more and to know more. So that we, like Daniel, can be ready at any point in time when we're called to, to stand up for what we believe, to take what's private and put it out in the public. As I said before, we're not going to go through the rest of the chapter today. I know you're excited. You want to know what all the prophecy was about. We are going to get into that next week. So if you have people that are interested in knowing what you know, Bible prophecy, invite them out. Because th- this, this dream is probably the most significant prophetic message ever revealed in all of Scripture. It's a really powerful passage of Scripture, and it's really intense and really amazing. Please come back next Sunday. Invite friends with you to hear it. Because it is really, really exciting.
My dad, uh, you know, loved telling that story about the elephant in the cherry tree, right? I hope you and I can, can really love telling the story of Daniel to other people. I hope that we can, we can be like that. We, we're not afraid to, to, to talk about our faith to other people. And, and, and it, maybe, maybe this week you'll have an opportunity to talk to someone and even share with them a little bit about what you learned about Daniel and what you're learning in your own personal life. 